Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, November 27th. Thanksgiving is coming gone. Black Friday is coming gone. Hope you got enough turkey and hope you got enough discounts and sales for that Christmas shopping, that early holiday shopping. No Black Friday deals for me. I don't know why. I just it's too busy. Hopefully Cyber Monday is better for me. But we've got plenty to get into. It's been a week. Apologies for no show this past week. It was tough, right? We had Thanksgiving coming up, trying to figure out when to do a show. And for those of you who listened to last week's episode, or the, the most recent episode, there were so many things that I touched on in that episode that were going to happen that it felt like I did a show in the middle of last week because a lot of things that I talked about happening ended up happening. Bob Bradley goes to Toronto FC. And Ezra Hendrickson goes to the Chicago Fire. Canada announces Hamilton as the site of U.S. Canada. And the U.S. announces where its next World Cup qualifiers will be. We'll get all we'll get into all that now. Later, we'll get into some Americans abroad. MLS, obviously MLS playoffs. They're well underway. We have a lot of catching up to do on the MLS playoff front. But we're going to start with the U.S. men's national team, as always. And we now know where the U.S. will be playing their qualifiers when qualifying resumes in January. And the U.S. will face El Salvador in Columbus, Ohio. Lower.com field once again. And obviously the U.S. had success there in, in was it October or November? I'm blanking already. Actually, it was October. They beat Costa Rica. Great, great crowd there. I was lucky enough to be there. And it was a good atmosphere. Very good atmosphere. So why not do it again? And then February 2nd, Panama will be taking the trip to Minneapolis. And I don't know if you know, but it gets pretty cold in Minneapolis in February, early February. And I heard the complaints already. There were a lot of complaints about these decisions. Why are you playing these games in these cold weather environments? Our players are not Eskimos. They're not. It's not like they're immune to cold weather. What is going on? This makes no sense. That's that's a complaint. And I just feel like people have short memories because, you know, how many for how many decades, how many years did the U.S. benefit from playing cold weather games against opponents that weren't used to cold weather? The U.S.-Mexico rivalry, as we saw it, La Guerra Fria, was born out of that initially. We all remember the Snow Classico, U.S.-Costa Rica in Colorado. So what is this complaining about now, the cold weather environments? It's really not this complicated to understand. You play, you pick these games not just because they're in a cold weather environment, but because you do have an advantage in that the opponents you're playing, El Salvador and Panama, most of their players are playing in warm weather leagues, number one. Number two, you are playing Canada in Hamilton, Ontario, on January 30th. It's going to be cold in Canada. Now, if you're the U.S. men's national team and you can get your team acclimated for an extended period of time to play in the cold weather, you are not. your players are not going to have the shock factor of going from one warm weather environment to a cold weather environment. They're going to go from playing El Salvador and Columbus on January 27th It's going to be cold in Columbus in January. Right into the Canada game in Hamilton, which is going to definitely be cold. And then from there, you go to Minneapolis. Your players have been playing in cold weather for more than a week at that point. Two matches. And they they face a Panama team that will have to make the adjustment from playing in the warm weather of Panama to playing in Minneapolis and also having to travel to Minneapolis. So a lot of things working in the U.S.'s favor. It's not just about the wet, cold weather. It's not just about the the makeup of the of the crowds, because I've heard that complaint as well. And that is an interesting one. 
keep having the, play games where there aren't as many Latin American fans, hoping that you don't get a ton of, of away fans, of visiting fans. We all remember the U.S. Costa Rica qualifier in New Jersey. As much as I hate to say it, in my home state, there were a lot of Costa Rica fans there. And that didn't help things. Now, that's not why the U.S. lost that night, to be clear. I'll always say that's a, that was a bit of a cop-out. Any, any suggestions of that? But I can understand why U.S. soccer would want to try to have games in, in venues and in cities where they can do a better job of controlling the crowd makeup. That, that, obviously, there, there's a certain line you have to be careful you're not crossing in terms of you don't want to shut out Latino fans across the board and then thereby, thereby shut out Latino American fans because there are obviously a lot of U.S. men's national team fans who are Latino. So you'd have to be careful about that. But this is purely a strategic and pretty clearly understandable strategy here to go from Columbus to Hamilton to Minneapolis. And the U.S. is going to have a clear advantage against El Salvador and a clear advantage against Panama. And the advantages gained from those matches, or more from the first match, will help cancel out or help minimize the advantage Canada might have in Hamilton. And I tell you what, I'm looking forward to all three. I'm not sure which matches I'll be at yet. Uh, at this point, obviously the Canada-U.S. match will be aired on Paramount+. Plus. Hopefully we'll be uh, hopefully we'll be in Canada for that one. Uh, we'll see about the other two. Uh, Minneapolis, I've actually not been to a game at Allianz Field yet, so hopefully I can get there. Even though <laughs> I'll have to bring the thermal underwear and the the balaclava, the the face covering, just to you know, just be completely bundled up so I don't freeze. But it's gonna be it's gonna be a great uh, great set of matches. But I just don't. I just the complaints were funny to me. I mean, I did see one that I pointed out, which I thought was pretty funny. Some random fan, quote unquote fan, ripped into U.S. soccer about the decision. Like, oh, why? Why do you have to resort to playing in cold weather? Can't you just beat these teams? Blah blah blah. And then you know, I checked this person's profile out, and like a week earlier, they were singing Canada's praises for for having the game in in Edmonton against Mexico. So it's like, wait a minute, how is this different? This is literally the same thing. This is CONCACAF. You do it if you can. Just like the CONCACAF teams will love to play you in some hot weather. They'd love to play you at noon on a, on a Sunday, like, like I remember Mexico playing the U.S. in Azteca. Easter Sunday, I believe it was 2005. I was there. Silly me, it was my first U.S.-Mexico qualifier, and I got all dressed up. It's Easter Sunday. I said, you know what? I'm going to put a long sleeve shirt, co- you know, a collar button-up shirt, uh, you know, dress pants. I was dressed for church. I was pretty much dressed for church for no reason, for no reason. I had the hard-bottom shoes on, trying to navigate the small steps at Azteca with my size 13 hard-bottoms. Not the smartest idea. Point is, it was hot. <laughs> it was hot. It was noon. It was, yeah, you know, I was sweating. I know the U.S. players were sweating. And that was by design. You had, the, you know, obviously you had the smog effect in Mexico City. It was an uncomfortable environment. And it was meant to be that way. Because you take advantage of, the, of what, you, what you have. And, and if you know you can put your opponent in some hot weather... Like Honduras against the U.S. in 2013 when they, you know, they played in San Pedro Sula and it's the middle of the day, blazing hot. And you have all these players on the U.S. team that had just came, come from the Bundesliga, just had just played in like 40 degree, 30 degree, 35 degree weather in Germany in early February. Almost that might have, might have been close to half, half a dozen German Americans or slash Bundesliga players. And all of a sudden they're playing in 85 degree extra high humidity conditions in Honduras and guess who won that game? Honduras. So you take advantage of what you can take advantage of with your home games. So I totally get the strategy behind this and to to be clear, you're talking about two pretty nice stadiums in lower.com field and Allianz field. 
I mean, top of the line stadiums, brand new. The fields are going to be impeccable. I'm pretty sure in Minneapolis, in Minneapolis they have the the heated gra- the heated grass, so it's going to you know you're not going to have snow on the field. Hopefully, you'll have, hopefully it's going to be you know clean playing surface. I mean, these are top facilities, so I don't get the complaints. I mean, at the end of the day, there's always somebody complaining about something. But I, for me, per me personally, I have no issue with the decisions made with these upcoming qualifiers. They make total sense to me, and they should make total sense to anyone really looking at the history of qualifying, the history of, of choosing venues, and trying to choose them to work in your advantage. That's, that's CONCACAF, and that's how it should be really anywhere around the world. Now, in some other CONCACAF news, FIFA had its draw for the World Cup qualifying setup, and CONCACAF's fourth-place finisher will face the winner of Oceania, in the playoff to get into the World Cup. Meaning, whoever finishes fourth in CONCACAF more than likely will be facing New Zealand for the chance to make the World Cup. Now, obviously, if you're the United States, if you do the U.S. men's national team, you don't want to be settling for fourth place. You don't want to have to play a playoff against New Zealand. That's first thing. Obviously, you want to qualify. You want to be top three, ideally top two, ideally number one. But you don't want to have to deal with a playoff. Even though someone will say, oh, it doesn't matter. As long as you get in, you get in. Mexico got in via the playoff uh, 2014 for 2014. No one remembers that. Uh, You know, okay, fine. Fair enough. But still, this U.S. team, there is no excuse for them to not finish in the top three. But it is a little bit of a a, a nice kind of security blanket there. A nice little cushion or added cushion knowing if you happen to finish fourth, you're going to have a little easier time of it than if, say, it had been the fifth-place finisher in South America, which, you know, would be a tougher challenge than New Zealand, obviously. Or the fifth-place finisher in Asia, which, in theory, would be a tougher opponent than New Zealand. And this time around, it worked in CONCACAF's favor. And, you know, if you're Panama, you're feeling pretty good because right now Panama's sitting in fourth. Panama's looking pretty good for, for fourth, even though we're just a little under halfway through. We're eight matches into 14-match octagonal cycle. But that's, uh, you know, that was some good news. And it's it's funny because on one hand, you should be you should feel good about that. Or you sh- as a U.S. fan, you should kind of take that, see the value in it because it does benefit every, everyone in CONCACAF aspiring to qualify because it's going to make the road a little bit easier for, for a fourth team. But immediately the thought is, wait a minute. We shouldn't even have to go that route. We shouldn't have to finish fourth. We should be top two. Not two. <laughs> top, as Drake would say, top two, not two. And right now, funny enough, Drake's team is number one, Canada. But uh, it's still good news. It's good news for CONCACAF. And uh, what's interesting is because of the draws that we've seen that, that took place on Friday and the developments regarding World Cup qualifying, You've seen a lot of complaining about the about the makeup of the of the participant pool for the World Cup, and it's really born out of what's happened in Europe with the UEFA qualifying setup. In case you missed it, Portugal and Italy, two of two of the better teams, two of the bigger teams in Europe, failed to win their groups, and are now in the playoff. And once they were dumped into this new playoff setup where 12 teams vie for three spots, there was always the possibility that you could see these teams end up having to face each other for the right to even make the World Cup. It was always a worst-case scenario, and that worst-case scenario has happened. Portugal and Italy are on a collision course where only one of them will make the World Cup in Qatar. And on one hand, I, I understand why some people are unhappy about that. And some people are kind of like, oh, this is unfair. This is, you know, it, well, the World Cup should have both. They should, bo-. But you know what? The World Cup is not a right. It's nobody's right. You have to qualify. Portugal and Italy had every opportunity to qualify. They weren't placed in these ridiculous groups. They weren't placed in these groups that were unreasonable. They dropped results. Obviously, with Portugal, you had the situation with the the non-VAR call, the the goal that should have counted for Portugal, and again, and again in their match against, I believe it was Serbia, and that that turned the tie. You're talking about a swing which would have 
in, if my understanding is correct, Portugal would have won that group. So if you're Portugal, you absolutely have the complaint about that, about the fact that a bad call now could cost you the World Cup. I get that. That's a whole other argument. The argument that I saw being made on uh, social media on Friday was just so, I'm sorry. And it's, and, and I saw it from some people that I, I like and respect, and I still like them and respect them. We can have differences of opinion. But this whole idea, this whole, this is a real arrogance that, you know what? Look, UEFA has the best teams. UEFA should have 28 slots out of 34, whatever the number. It, like, it's, you already get, what do you get, 13 spots? 13 is not enough, really. 13. If you can't make one of if you can't get one of the 13 slots out of Europe, then sorry. That's a lot of spots as it is. And when it comes down to it, this is supposed to be the World Cup, a tournament with all the different regions represented to give a a, a, a thorough representation of the globe. What kind of World Cup would it be if 80 75% of the teams are from Europe? I feel like people who have who make this argument don't comprehend how many countries there are in the world. And they just look that thumb their noses down at, at, at smaller countries. I mean, I thought, you know, so I saw someone was complaining about Peru and I, oh, Peru has seven losses. Why should they even be in the conversation? I believe it was seven, Peru had seven losses in the last qualifying cycle and they ended up going to the World Cup with seven losses in their qualifying cycle. And then someone Thankfully, stepped up and pointed out that, hey, Peru had, you know, they played more. All the teams they played were ranked higher than the highest ranked opponent Portugal, uh, Portugal played. So, you know, you can't you can't just go by the records. Number one. And you can't just say make this argument. that Oh, well, you know, Europe has the best teams. They should have, you know, as many slots as they want. Like, like no, I'm sorry. The Euros are the Euros. You want to watch all European teams play each other? Watch the Euros. The World Cup should be have a, a good mix of representation. Europe is well represented. So this idea that oh, it's it's a you know it's bad. The setup's bad, and how dare they have these teams that don't deserve quote unquote deserve to be there? Like I'm like, give me a break, okay? Last time I checked, Portugal, uh, you know, they can't beat. They've played the U.S. twice at the World Cup. In the last, what, 20 years? Didn't beat him either time. U.S. won in 2 They tied in 2014. It wasn't too long ago in 2014 where Costa Rica was seen as the team making up the numbers in the World Cup. When, it was, uh, when they had a group with, I believe it was Italy, England, and Uruguay. In, the, in a group with Costa Rica. And everyone was like, oh, look at this. What a joke. Like, why is, you know, the CONCACAF, why CONCACAF have, why do they have teams in the World Cup? Mexico, that's it. Maybe the U.S. And what did Costa Rica do? They won the group. They won that killer group with Uruguay, England, and Italy. So give me a break, folks. Not all, not everybody, not all, but just the the people, the snobs, the snobs were like, oh, it should be 25 European teams. Like, oh, we're so much better than everybody. We should have all the, all the World Cup slots. Get over yourself. The World Cup should have good representation of the entire world. Now, could CONCACAF have, uh, you know, could they be okay with just three spots? Sure. But this idea of poor Europe... Well, poor Europe, we only get 13 slots, we should have 25 slots. I don't know what accent that is, but point is, it's a joke. I'm sorry. I'm a little, I'm a little you know, you start coming at Peru, I, I mean, you're not a problem with me. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Um, but yeah, I thought that was an interesting. It, it raised an interesting d- debate, and, and it was good to see some people understand the value in having good overall balanced, somewhat balanced global representation and why you can't have it just be, you know, 95% Europe and South America and 5% everyone else. Like, no. The beauty, part of the beauty of the World Cup is the fact that you have all these different cultures going, you know, mixing, going against each other. These teams you don't know much about coming from, you know, Africa. Coming from Asia. I mean, that's the beauty. 
Anyone who's ever had a chance to be at a World Cup, you've seen that firsthand. I was looking, I've, I've been to four. I've been to four. I've covered four World Cups. And there is so there is some serious beauty in that, in seeing the cultures mix. Not just on the field in the different matches and, and the outcomes we've seen. I mean, I still remember France-Senegal, 2002 World Cup opener. Everyone was ready to anoint France. France was the reigning champion. They were going to walk over Senegal. What happened? Senegal wins that opener. So there is nothing wrong with having a good mix of representation. And if you can't, if you're a European power and you can't navigate the World Cup qualifying setup, it's you have only yourself to blame. Because none of these teams are in true groups of death in their group stages. None. Generally speaking, you have you rarely get a situation where you have two true juggernauts in the same qualifying group. So if you have a team stumble if you, or you have a team have kind of sleepwalk through a qualifying cycle, it can happen. This is what's happened to Italy now. You know, they're coming off of their success of winning Euros and what happened? They, you know, they've, they've been caught napping here. Dropping points. And it cost them. Portugal, there's a little bit more of a sympathy for Portugal because of what happened with that with that no call or with the VAR that what goal that should have been totally understand that you you totally sympathize with them for that. But having an issue with that is much different than wanting to tear up the whole system because some powers are going to miss the world cup. Guess what? This isn't new. Big countries in Europe have missed the world cup before. It's going to happen. You know how you'd avoid that by winning your games, beating these teams that you're supposed to beat. So, I, you know what? Nobody feel bad for these teams. And guess what? We're going to see some great games. We, we have the potential to see Italy versus Portugal in essentially a, a, a World Cup play-in match if they win their games. And there's a few of those. You could have Poland against Sweden. You could have Zlatan against Robert Lewandowski with a World Cup ticket on the line. So, yeah, no, you know what? I, Europe, Europe's great. Tons of great countries, so much talent. Obviously, Europe is the epicenter of the game, but they have enough slots. No one, compl- no one should feel bad about Europe having not enough slots. That's a joke to me. Sorry. Okay, rant over. We'll move on. We'll, we'll move on. And uh, apologies for, for making that last way longer than it needed to. Uh, next up, we will jump into Americans Abroad. And on the Americans Abroad front, it was a it was a significant week because we saw a new record, another new record set. Most Americans playing in one match day. I believe the record was seven. We had seven Americans playing, featuring this match day. And it's great to see, especially when you have American versus American, one on each side. You have Chelsea against Juventus, two juggernauts and going at it, and you had Americans starting on both sides. You had Christian Pulisic. Weston McKinney doing battle at the highest level of, of club soccer. So that's, that's beautiful to see. It was obviously great to see Christian Pulisic get a start. It'd been months. And I know we saw some mixed reviews from some people as far as how he fared. And for those who missed it, he was, he was deployed as a striker. I know there was a lot of kind of debate about, is it a false nine? It has to be a false nine. He's not a true striker, so he has to be a false nine. He didn't really operate like a, like a true false nine in terms of dropping back and trying to combine and try to be that playmaker in the midfield. He really was a disruptor. He was really trying to inter, interplay and combine, uh, swap positions with the front three, really trying to, Occupy the spaces in the Juventus defense, and you know you try to stay between two defenders and have and force both of them to worry about you. And he didn't have a goal, and he didn't have an assist, but he definitely was a handful for the Juventus defense. And if you watch some of these goals, you see Juventus defenders having to worry about Pulisic. I saw Leonardo Bonucci, arguably Juventus's best defender, on two of the Chelsea goals, and Chelsea won four 0 By the way. Two of the Chelsea goals I saw Benucci occupied, tied up by, did, were having to worry about Christian Pulisic. And there's value in that. So the idea that, oh, he didn't play well, he wasn't, he didn't, you know, this was, it was a failed experiment. They won 4-0, folks. What are you talking about? He didn't score a goal, he didn't have an assist, but he was effective in the system. And that's what people need to kind of look beyond the basic, look beyond the obvious 
goal assist. You have to look at the overall setup. What's the position? What is the coach or manager asking of the player? And if you watch them play, Pulisic did what he was asked to do. To help unsettle Juventus' defense. To help create space for his teammates. And yes, it would have been great if he scored a goal himself or gotten an assist himself. Yes, it would have been great. It would have been better. But he did his job. And we'll see if he continues to get opportunities. But obviously, look, this was a big match. Thomas Tuchel turned to him. Gave him a start. So that was great to see. Obviously not a great day for Weston McKinney. He, uh, it, it was a bad touch on his part that gave uh, Chelsea the, the last goal in the, in the final seconds. At the end of the day, that really didn't matter, but still it wasn't, it wasn't a great moment. It was a great week, however, for McKinney because you had the debut of the Juventus documentary on Amazon Prime. And I haven't watched it. I've seen some of it. But I, just from what I've already seen, you kind of can tell that Weston McKinney is going to be one of the stars of this thing because he's Mr. Personality. He has that he has that amazing personality. And if you're going to get to see the behind-the-scenes interactions of him and his new Italian teammates at Juventus last season, which we've already seen, I mean, the, 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 the shots of him and, and uh, Giorgio Chiellini <laughs> at, at the lunch table, I mean, already you're talking comedy gold. So... Wes McKinney, it's just, his star is just rising, right? On top of the fact that he's playing well for Juventus, the Chelsea match aside. He's playing in important matches. He's, be, he's become a fixture for Max Allegri's midfield and how things have changed. Remember in August when you saw reports and you heard rumors Max Allegri wants no part of Weston McKinney. Weston McKinney's on his way out. There were rumors as recently as a, a month ago. McKinney's leaving in January. Someone's going to buy him in January. Juventus doesn't want him. I know Juventus has financial troubles. They could use money. But the fact is McKinney has, has established himself now as a reliable player for Max Allegri. Massimiliano Allegri. Allegri's the fan now. And as long as Allegri's the manager, you, it's going to be hard to imagine Weston McKinney going anywhere. And he's earned that. Playing well overcoming the issues that he had in September, putting his head down, finding his form. Great to see, and I can't wait, <clears throat> can't wait to see him in January in World Cup qualifying. And it's going to be great to see how his role evolves at Juventus as he gains confidence. Well, he's already full of confidence, but as he you know finds his scoring groove, he's gotten a couple of goals, he's going to start to find himself in the attack, much like he did last season. And you know what? Juventus, they're, they're a work in progress still. But they've won some big matches lately. And they have another big match this weekend. They're playing Atalanta. I'm working with the CBS Sports crew in on the Serie A coverage this weekend. Make sure you watch. Hopefully you're listening to this show early enough on Saturday morning. Will you be able to catch our doubleheader on Paramount Plus? You have Inter Milan against Venezia. Gianluca Busio against Inter Milan, the reigning champions. That's the later match. And then at noon, first match... You have Atalanta, Juventus. Juventus with a two-match winning streak in Serie A. Looking to climb into range for the top four. Weston McKinney is going to have a big part to play. And he's going to be an important part of this match against Atalanta as Juventus tries to slow down a very high-powered Atalanta, Atalanta attack. And McKinney will try to become the second American this week to score against Atalanta. Because for those who missed it, Jordan Peefock scored against Atalanta in Champions League. A 3-3 draw. Big result for young boys to, to tie Atalanta. Obviously, Atalanta would have expected all three points, but P. Fox scoring the goal. Obviously, it's been a rough go for him in the past couple of months, but there he is getting that goal, and you want to see if he can kind of get back into that rhythm and put himself back into the conversation for the U.S. men's national team. And I do still think that P. Fox and Josh Sargent and Daryl D.K. will have their opportunities in the January-February window to play themselves on that squad. I don't think the shift over to the Jesus Ferreira, different kind of striker backing up Ricardo Pepe, I don't think that's the new norm. I think that was specific to the challenges of November, the opponents in November, the form of players in November. But a lot can and will change between now and the January camp ahead of those qualifiers. 
And Jordan Pifak, great to see him score that goal. He's, I think there's still a lot of work that he needs to do to really push ahead of someone like Sargent. Obviously, Sargent needs to score goals and get consistent playing time. And then you have Daryl Dike, who had a great second half of the season in MLS with Orlando City. Here we are heading into January. Will he go? Will he be sold? Will Orlando City sell him, or will they try to hold on to him for another season? So that bears watching, but we've kind of rambled through the Champions League, Americans abroad contingent, but still great to see. Uh, great to see Tim Weah's Lille get a W. Brendan Aronson's uh, Red Bull Salzburg, obviously losing that one. Uh, Wolfsburg with a loss, not great there. Borussia Dortmund has been knocked out. Uh, obviously, Giorena's been out since September. Erling Haaland is injured, and he's been out. So it was kind of not a surprise that Dortmund would end up falling out, but they are not going to be in the knockout rounds. That's bad news, obviously, because you like to think Giorena eventually will get back. Although now, you know, he can focus his attentions on just getting on the field. And I think we're all still waiting anxiously to see when he can get back healthy. And, you know, the, the next qualifiers are two months away. And if, you know, normally you'd say, oh, that's plenty of time. He should be back. He should be back. But it's been September. It's what are we on? September, October, November, December. We're almost at three months now. Almost at three months since Gio Reyna was injured and has been sidelined. I mean, that's brutal for a player who's really, you know, just on his his career was in a skyrocketing trajectory. And and look, being injured this for this period of time does not all of a sudden make mean he's no he's not that player anymore. Let's be clear. But it is just unfortunate that, you know, he's missing this up this time, which could have been helping him continue to climb as one of the best young players in Europe, if not the world. But he'll be back. And uh, I think we're all looking forward to it. And hopefully he'll be back for these qualifiers in late January. Moving on to MLS. And as I mentioned earlier, in the MLS news department, Bob Bradley has been hired by Toronto FC to be their head coach slash sporting director. Ali Curtis conveniently left the club just before Bob Bradley was hired. I mean, let's be real. We know what happened there. They wanted Bob Bradley. They had to get rid of Ali Curtis. They got rid of Ali Curtis. And now Bradley's running the show. And as I mentioned last episode, that was going to be the situation that Bob Bradley would be leaving LAFC for. You had to understand. You had to know. And I mentioned in the last episode, that was, that, that was the only thing that made sense. The only reason for him to leave LAFC would be to go find or go or have the opportunity to land a position where he would have total control. And now he has that. And he has that with a team, with an ownership group that has the track record of spending money, that has great facilities, and that also happens to have his son still playing for them, and Michael Bradley. And we are getting the Bob Bradley, Michael Bradley reunion. And I know there's some fans who aren't fans of the Bradleys, whatever. But the fact is, if you're a Toronto FC fan, you should be excited about what can happen now in terms of that relationship, in terms of, you know, Michael Bradley, as much as some U.S. fans now kind of treat him as this persona non grata, as this you know villain, what have you. The folks in Toronto, for the most part, my understanding, Toronto FC fans... Uh, really appreciate everything that he's done as the long-term captain of Toronto FC. And now you want to see how Bob Bradley's arrival will impact Michael Bradley's effect on the field. And that's going to be interesting to watch. And uh, let's think back. When is the last time Bob Bradley and Michael Bradley were together on a club level? For those who don't remember, Bob Bradley was Michael Bradley's first professional head coach with the Metro Stars. Back in uh, 2003, four, five, wait, 2004, 2005, I believe they became the Red Bulls in 2005. I could be wrong. So we're going back a ways now. But point is, 16 years. It's been 16 years since Bob Bradley was coaching Michael Bradley on the club level. And now here they are. Reunited, and we'll see what happens there. And I want to see what kind of team Bob Bradley builds. He's going to have his, he's going to have every, you know complete control. He's going to get have the resources to, to to strengthen that team. And obviously, there are some good pieces there. It's not a complete overhaul, but they definitely need to work on some things, fix the defense. Um, they need do need to some add some pieces on the wing. But there is talent there, and. uh I said it last episode, I'll say it again. The team that hires Bob Bradley to run their organization is going to win. And I believe Bob Bradley running Toronto FC, take that combination, you are going to see a winner. So if you're asking me to bet some money down, I would put some money on Emma, on Bob Bradley 
lifting an MLS Cup in the next three years. You can quote me on that. I definitely see it happening in between now and the next three years. Next three, these next three seasons of 22, 23, 24, I think you'll see Toronto FC lift another MLS Cup with Bob Bradley at the helm. Now, the other hire among the MLS coaching brethren was Ezra Henderson has been hired as Chicago Firehead's coach and Obviously, he has put together a pretty impressive resume on the coaching side as an assistant for some successful teams, but also his playing career. You want to talk about a guy who who was a winner and who was a part of so many different different winning teams. And I know some people could say, oh, but, you know, that's not always about the player. Sometimes it's just about luck, just ending up on these organizations and ending up on these championship teams. And look, does does luck play some part in that? Sure. But I think he has also shown himself to be a lock, uh, uh, an excellent leader, a real locker room presence. Uh, I heard nothing but great things about him when he was in Seattle as an assistant. Obviously, he went over to Columbus Crew. They win an MLS Cup when he's there. So... I mean, he's got a pretty impressive track record, and you know he—that was part of the rollout when the fire announced it. They, they, you know, they laid out all of the of, of the titles that he's won as a player and as an assistant. Now the challenge begins in Chicago, and he definitely has his work cut out for him there. They have a very, very disjointed roster, and there's going to be some serious overhaul there. Too many foreign players. You can't. We've seen it consistently now in MLS. You need to have a pretty good foundation of domestic players. You don't need a you need a, you don't need to have all domestic players, but you want to have your nucleus ha- consist of a good base of domestic players if you're going to have consistent success. It's kind of hard to put together a team of all foreign players. It's it's I mean you have to have so many things go right to do that, to pull that off in MLS with the salary restrictions and the internet the foreign player slots that are available. I mean just look at look at the teams now. Look at New England Revolution and the team they've put together. Yes, their designated players are all playing at a very high level, but look at their nucleus. You're talking American players. You're talking about college players, college products, draft picks. There's a reason that there's a reason that that, that they've built a pretty damn good roster. And uh, you know what? We'll see what happens now with the Chicago Fire and how Ezra Hendrickson works with that front office to build a winning team and help uh, bring success back to Chicago. It's been a while. It's been a long while since they've had real success in Chicago. And we'll see, hopefully for the fire fans, Ezra Hendrickson can be the guy to turn things around there. And moving on to MLS playoffs. And there's been some shakeups in the MLS playoffs and we have so much to catch up on uh, because all, you know, you've seen how many teams, two, four, six teams have been, been eliminated already, if not more. And we have to start with Real Salt Lake shocking the Seattle Sounders, eliminating the Sounders in a penalty shootout. And I know the, the, the headline, or at least in some people's minds, the headline was the fact that RSL, Real Salt Lake, won a playoff game without a single shot on goal. Right? I get that. That was pretty shocking. However, when it comes down to it, Seattle Sounders, for their 21 shots, if you only get three on goal and... You know, you don't, you aren't able to put really dangerous chances on goal. I don't know how how much of a complaint you can really have. And yes, while they had more of the ball, you could say they played the better of the soccer. None of that matters. At the end of the day, if you don't put the ball in the net, you have that opportunity to lose. And it is a little ironic that I believe see, I believe the Sounders won an MLS Cup without getting a shot on goal. Right. So goes around, comes around. I don't know about calling that karma because it's been a while. At a certain point, it's a little, you know, they, they've had plenty of success since then. So I don't know if I go with the karma angle on that front. But I do think it was an interesting coincidence that here, you know, Seattle wins an MLS Cup without a shot. And here they are. They're eliminated by a team in the playoffs who doesn't register a single shot. So if we want to talk about karma with the RSL Seattle playoff match, you obviously you have to look at Freddie Juarez, the former Real Salt Lake head coach who left Re- Real Salt Lake, he left the head coaching position with Real Salt Lake to take a job as an assistant for the Seattle Sounders. And at the time, it definitely felt like a little disrespectful. It's like, you're your head coach. You have a head coaching job. How are you leaving a head coaching job to be an assistant? And obviously, some people looked at it and say, hey, look, Seattle Sounders, they're, you know, great organization, one of the top organizations in the league. You understand 
why he would want to do that, why he'd have the opportunity to learn under Brian Schmetzer. So realistically, it wasn't the most outrageous thing ever, but there is some irony in the fact that who eliminates the Sounders from the playoffs but Real Salt Lake, right? I mean, there was some irony there. And as much as you do get the sense that the RSL players, or for the most part, RSL players have a lot of love and respect for Freddy Juarez. If you could tell in the pregame greetings that a lot of them players gave to Juarez. So it's not like bad blood or hatred or you betrayed us. Like, they, you know, they, you don't get that sense. But still, somewhere deep down, these RSL players are looking at this like, you shouldn't have left. Take that. They might not admit it, but deep down, you can't blame them if that's how some of them feel. But let's talk about RSL and let's talk about David Ochoa, who has completely leaned into this whole villain persona, right? In terms of the opposing fans, he does not care. He does not care if you're offended by him. He does not care if you get pissed off at his antics. He doesn't care. He eats it up. If anything, he thrives on it. He thrives on the booze. He thrives on the criticisms of about his behavior and act like you've been there. Like, no, he's going to act like how he wants to act. He's a 20-year-old goalkeeper. He's a kid. He's having fun. Is it Mike? Would I do some of the things he's done? No, but doesn't mean he can't. Doesn't mean he shouldn't. Doesn't mean you should necessarily like hate him. I mean, I look, some people are going to obviously I, I feel some of this still is obviously about the fact that he chose to play for Mexico. And I can't help but wonder if at least some of the hatred, at least some of the animosity is is has been fueled or has been exacerbated by that decision. If he was still in the U.S. player pool. If he had been on the bench for some qualifiers, if he had been part of a you know youth camp since then and hadn't completely embraced making the decision to play for Mexico, would there be as much hate and derision aimed at him right now? I don't think so. I think part of that, I think part of this has been obviously fueled by that decision. And you know what? At the end of the day, you can love any player you want. You can hate any player you want. But... You know, I, for me, he's a kid. He's a kid who's enjoying himself. Uh, you know what? He's coming into his own. I'm sure when he's 30, is he going to still be doing this stuff? Probably not. Is he going to grow out of it eventually? Probably. But he's a talent. He's a talented player. And I'll, I'll be the first to say, like, for me, I, like, it is obviously disappointing that he is not still in the U.S. player pool. Because we're talking about a talented prospect. But I can't help but wonder, like, it, it, it's just... I can see how people it's getting under some of the people, some people's skin, some of the stuff he does. Absolutely. I get it. Totally. Is there some gamesmanship here? Obviously, but you know what you want? If you want to shut him up, beat him. If you want him to stop pulling these antics, beat him. And Seattle couldn't do it. And now it's up to sporting Kansas city to see if they can silence him. And uh, I'm sure if you're sporting Kansas city, you already have a bit of a grudge on RSL because you know you you were cheated not cheated but you were you feel like you were wronged out of having the number one seed, right? And 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 we talk about karma all you know we talked about karma earlier, but how about the how about this for karma? You know KC feels like they should have had a penalty in that game against Real Salt Lake, and if they get that penalty against Real Salt Lake, in theory they probably win that game, and if they win that game, they're the number one seed in the West. Fast forward, what happens? The number one seed, Colorado Rapids, eliminated. The number two seed, Seattle Sounders, eliminated. And who is now the top remaining seed in the Western Conference playoffs? You guessed it, Sporting Kansas City. So in, from that standpoint, maybe, you know what, justice has prevailed in that, in that kind of indirect way, right? So if you're, if you're Sporting Kansas City, I, I can't believe me if you're kind of like, you know, chuckling a little bit at, at it. But at the same time, you still want to beat RSL because none of it's going to matter. If you let RSL beat you and uh, it's going to be hard for RSL to pull that same, you know, defense only sit back approach against Kansas, against Kansas city. Cause I'll tell you what Seattle, when it comes down to it, just to kind of go back to the Seattle game, obviously Seattle didn't have Raul Diaz in its start in the starting lineup. They didn't have Nicholas Lodero in the starting lineup. They didn't have Alex Roldan in the starting lineup. Now, they all came into the match in the second half of that game, but obviously the injuries were more of an issue than we realized, than we thought. Because obviously a lot of those guys came back at the end of the regular season, and you thought, okay, look, 
Seattle's healthy heading into the playoffs. But obviously they were not healthy. And that worked in Real Salt Lake's favor. Because for me, a full-strength, fully healthy Seattle Sounders team beats RSL 10 times out of 10. That's my opinion. Obviously, there's no way to know. But once you saw all those players missing, it opened the door. And full credit for Real Salt Lake. Because they went into Seattle. It doesn't matter if they were missing those players. Still a very good team. They still went in there. They got the W. But it's going to be tough to pull that off again. Go on the road. Beat Sporting Kansas City. A Sporting KC team that is closer to full health than Seattle was. So we'll see. That's going to be a good matchup. That's on Sunday. Um, obviously, the Portland Timbers defeating the Colorado Rapids. That that th- To be clear, that's not an upset. And for anyone who's saying that was an upset, you just know. It's not an upset. Yes, the Rapids were the one seed. But we've said, you know, I feel like I've said it. They didn't have a lot of playoff experience. And this was always going to be one of these things where, you know what, you won, you got the top seed, congratulations, but you're still going to have to learn and go through it. And that's what they did. They went through it. They played great in the first half, but they didn't get the goal. And you're going to learn from that. You have to go through it. You have to, the same thing happened with the Philadelphia Union last year with the Supporters Shield. They won the Supporters Shield. They were great all season. They get into the playoffs, they lose. But they learned from that. And I think they're going to be better for it this year. And Colorado, you can say the same thing. The only thing that's a little different is that Colorado, can they keep that team together when you have a Cole Bassett who could be leaving? When you have a Kellen Acosta who, in theory, might you know want to leave? Mark Anthony Kay, what's his future with the team? So if they can keep that team together, yes, absolutely, 2022, the Rapids, you have to like what you see there. They, you know, they could still, in theory, hopefully, the ownership would spend some more money and they can go you know, get themselves a big ticket striker. That'd be great. But they were always going to have some issues, especially against a Portland team that has that championship experience, that has killers who know what it is to step up in the playoffs, like Sebastian Blanco, even though obviously he got injured in the second half of that game. So I was not at all surprised. I'm not saying I bet money on it, but I was not at all surprised. And I actually expected Portland to beat the Colorado Rapids. I know it's easy to say now. I wish I would have done an episode if I had done an episode on Wednesday. I would have been able to say it, but I didn't. My fault. But I have the betting stub I can show you. But anyway, moving on. Timbers move on to to the next round. And the Timbers, you know, Sebastian Blanco, he was injured in that win against Colorado. And obviously his health is going to be a big factor if they're going to be able to take that next step. You know, win the next round. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. But if they have, if they don't have Blanco and now you don't have Dairon Espria, Gio Savarese is going to have a real, real tough, uh, tough challenge there. Trying to, you know, you're going to get Sporting Kansas City or RSL. Let's say if Sporting Kansas City holds through, it's going to be tough to beat uh, Sporting Kansas City without Sebastian Blanco and without Dairon Espria. But that's why they play the games, and we'll see what happens. Maybe RSL pulls another upset, and we have Timbers RSL in the Western Conference Final. Stranger things have happened. Now, in the Eastern Conference, obviously, Nashville defeated Orlando City. The Philadelphia Union with the Jacob Glesnes Golasso defeated the, the New York Red Bulls. You had NYCFC defeat Atlanta United. And now that has set up a Final Four in the East, consisting of the New England Revolution taking on NYCFC, which is, for me, uh, that's going to be a great one. And as unbelievable as New England has been this year, they are. It's not a given that they're going to beat NYCFC. I think that's going to be a great match. It could go either way. NYCFC absolutely has the weapons and absolutely has the team to pull the upset. Having said that, get, give me Bruce Arena in the playoffs with a healthy team, with a stacked team like he has. I'm going to go New England. You still take New England. Then you have Philadelphia Union playing host to Nashville SC. Obviously, Nashville at home, they're a much different animal than they are on the road. This is going to be a this is a tough one. This can absolutely go either way. Nashville against Philly, Philly Nashville. Who do you go? I'm going to go Philly in this one. They play on Sunday. I wish I could get down there for that. Got to see if I can get a seat down there. I might try to get down there for that one. But that should be a good one. My money's on Philly in that one, and uh, and we'll see. We'll see if uh, we get New England, Philly, what Eastern Conference final? Eastern Conference final. The New England uh, NYCFC game is actually on Tuesday. I'm I'm looking to get up for that one. Uh, get up to Gillette for that one. So we will see. But that's the playoff matchups 
as you have it. So far, some exciting, obviously, some exciting games in the playoffs, exciting finishes, as it always is. You can say what you want about the regular season and MLS being too long. It could be boring in the summer. It could drag on. The playoffs, they usually deliver. The playoffs, there's usually drama. There's usually heroics. There's usually amazing goals, amazing saves, crazy finishes, and we've seen it already. We've already seen some, and hopefully we see more. And that's it. I think that wraps it up for this episode of the SBI show. I'm sure there's plenty that I could have that I didn't get into here, but we're going to have to wrap this one up and try to get back to it. I will. I am. The plan is to get back to the normal schedule, hopefully have a Monday episode and Thursday slash Friday morning episodes. That's that's the sweet spot. I'm hoping to get that rolling now that we've got through the holidays. We've gotten things somewhat settled with the news with with the changes at SBI soccer.com. We had the obviously the 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 redesign and the change over to subscription. And if you haven't yet and you're interested, make sure you look into our new subscription setup at SBI Soccer. Please, if you can, and you're interested and you're a fan of SBI Soccer, please subscribe to SBI Soccer as we bring you everything uh, in terms of coverage of American soccer, whether it's MLS, U.S. Men's National Team, Americans Abroad, uh, Women's Soccer, U.S. Women's National Team, NWSL, even some USL as well, some college soccer coming with the MLS draft around the corner. So we're going to have plenty for you to read and plenty for you to enjoy if you're a subscriber as well as for non-subscribers. But if you're a subscriber, you get the full experience and you also help SBI as a site as we move on into 2022 and what will be our 15th season, 15th year of existence. Crazy. 15 years. That, that it's, it's amazing how time flies, but that's it. That wraps it up. And definitely thank you to everyone who has subscribed. We've, uh, you know, I think we've gotten past the 100 subscriber mark. It's slow go, but we're building something and hopefully uh, it leads to bigger things ahead in 2022. And obviously, if you're listening and you already are a subscriber, let me know what you think. Let me know what you would like to see better. Let me know what you like. I know there are things that we still need to work on and to improve. And we are working on that. And obviously, same with the SBI show. I will be working on and trying to improve the SBI show, work on getting uh, the regular guests. I know I've been saying it for so long. We will get back to that as well. I still have the video content that is on the way that's been on the shelf a bit, but we will get to that as well at SBISoccer.com. So stay tuned for that. Uh, And check back in on Monday as we wrap up the latest on the Americans Abroad front, catch up on the MLS playoff results and any other news that breaks this weekend. But that's all for now. I'm Ivis Galarsa. This is the SBI Show.